1: Welcome to episode 52 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. As all of my listeners know, it is really hard to be a grieving parent. It is especially hard to be a grieving parent when your child's death is really publicized. I know I remember that. Our car accident made every local news station and... Pictures of me from my pediatric website were on the news every night for those first few nights. I really felt like everyone was noticing me just because the death was so public. But for today's guest, it was even more public than that. You see, she was normally the one telling the news. She was the reporter. She was the person who would have talked to me after the accident, who would have talked to my loved ones. She would have been the one in front of Andy's school talking to the principal. But two years ago, she wasn't just reporting the news. She was the news. Her daughter had died of a drug overdose. The big question, really, is how do you move on from that? It certainly would have been easier for her to simply hide away. But after a short time of healing... She realized that her platform and ability to be able to talk to others could really help, could help this horrible opioid epidemic that is going through our country and the world. If she could use her resources in order to prevent even one overdose death, to prevent one other set of parents from having to go through the horror that she had experienced, she was going to do it. And that's exactly what she's done. She started the foundation, Emily's Hope, in order to provide treatment and encourage prevention for drug addiction. She's also started her own podcast, which is how how I found her. Her podcast is called Grieving Out Loud. I have certainly found it helpful and know that all of you would enjoy listening to it as well. Today... I don't invite you to listen to Angela, the reporter. I invite you to listen to Angela, Emily's mom. Thank you so much, Angela, for agreeing to come on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited to have you on today because you have done so much of what I have done in some ways. We both started podcasts after losing our children, and yours has a little bit of a different take, I think, than mine does, but why don't you first start out by just telling us all about your daughter?
2: Well, Emily was my firstborn child. She was born in 1997, and she was just... uh, I just figured out what my purpose in life was when she was born. I realized that I was there to serve her. Uh, That was what I was here for all along. And um, I just, she was so fun. She was also challenging though. You know, Mm -hmm. she was a a difficult uh, birth and uh, delivery. And she was just she didn't sleep through the night till she was four. (laughs) She was, oh oh my goodness! Yeah, she was. um, She's very headstrong, uh, very hard, you know, to teach. You know, not to touch the hot stove, kind of thing just more of a high needs, fussy baby. So she was uh, colicky at first. She had a milk protein allergy. I mean, I'm telling all these things cause you're a pediatrician. So yes,
1: I know but, all these things. I hear that <laughs> all the time, these stories,
2: <laughs> but at the same time, she was uh, also just quite remarkable. She was, she would bring me things starting as a toddler. She would make things out of grass and sticks, these creations that were like, she was never a kid to color in the lines. Mm -hmm. You know, she was very gifted artistically right away from the beginning. She was also very athletic, determined to do whatever she set in her mind to do. So she was a gymnast and a cheerleader and she was in track. She did hurdles like the hardest thing that you can do in track. She did. Uh, She was just beautiful from right away from the beginning. She was just a gorgeous baby and a beautiful little girl and a beautiful young woman uh, and she just had this zest for life. And she was super goofy and funny. Mm-hmm. She she was my everything. She really was. And, and I do have other children. I have two other biological children and then a stepson. And I mm-hmm. love those kids to death. And they all are amazing as well. But I think when you have your first child, you know, you're just so overwhelmed by this whole experience, because you've never experienced anything like this before. Yeah. So you're a rookie. You're both rookies,
1: and you both don't know what you're doing. And, uh, you know, she's who made you a mom. What made you a mom? Mm-hmm. She
2: made me. I always tell her that, you know, you made me a mom. I used to mm-hmm. always tell her that, and I always, used to always tell her, you know, God must really love me to give me a daughter like you, and I'm so lucky to be your mom. And I always just try to shower these things over her, you know, every, every night. And she was my kid who was always watching to make sure I was watching, you know, at the volleyball game, the basketball game, whatever it was that she was doing, she's always checking to make sure mom was watching. Mm -hmm. We had a really strong bond, really strong bond. She was my Velcro kid. I always called her Uh, really (laughs) struggled if, if you know, she had a really attached to me and uh, it was hard for her. Her dad and I were divorced and that was a, it was a hard time for her when um, she would have to go to his house because she didn't want to be apart from me. And um, those were some hard things. But really, uh, the difficulty with Emily really started in high school. I thought, you know, I just could never have imagined some of the things, the course that her life took, uh, some of the kids that she started hanging around, some of the things that she started doing, and I couldn't understand it. And I fought so hard for her. You know, I fought Mm -hmm. so hard. I, I, I took her to counselor after counselor. I tried to get her into treatment. I did all of these things just because I could see the road that the choices she was making were only going to lead to pain. I mean, I took a class in how to handle an oppositional teenager. You know, I did all these things, everything I could think of, I, I did, uh, but it didn't save her life. You know, she still ended up uh, suffering from addiction and she was really attracted to that whole lifestyle, and that whole world. She had met a boy pretty young at 16 That was a big factor in it, and uh, Mm -hmm. although she is, you know, responsible for her own actions, but I have learned a lot about the disease of addiction, you know, especially since her death, more so even since her death than when I was in the middle of the battle and the war, but I didn't know she was going to die. I didn't know what she was doing, so we were planning an intervention for her because we knew something was horribly wrong. She wasn't living in my house. She'd been living with this boy that she'd been with since the age of 16, and then they had just broken up 3 weeks prior and i thought oh good this is my chance really to get her yeah. some help and uh, we i we we, went with, we met with interventionists my entire family i remember struggling like what is it is she doing math what is what she do? i i never thought that she would be doing heroin let alone using needles and doing heroin i figured she was smoking marijuana and taking pills like uh, anti anxiety pills or Xanax that type of thing mm-hmm. um but She died um, because she injected heroin that contained fentanyl and and nobody in her own room, alone in her room, uh, in her apartment, and nobody was there and and nobody knew. And um, it's just something that I reported. I'm a reporter and I had done stories about the opioid crisis and about people dying from this very same thing. But my kid, you know, I just never thought that was going to happen, but it did. It did, and we lost her.
1: Yeah, I was reading on your web page about how you had just recently been doing a story, right?
2: Right. In fact, that day, that day that she died, I was doing a story on Good Samaritan laws and overdoses and how people could call in an overdose of a friend I mean, knowing that my daughter had some kind of problem, right? Knowing that, okay, we're going to get her into this treatment center where we know something's wrong, but never thinking she was going to overdose from something. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just so weird that my mind wouldn't go there, but it, it never went there. I never.
1: So what was going on that was making you concerned, but not
2: really know, you know? Well, her appearance had been changing. So she was a beautiful girl always, but she was picking at her face. And so I had thought, is it meth? You know, because people who use, but she was so so anti-meth her her entire life. Every time I never, she never talked about it. I I didn't know. And then um, she could sort of uh, stopped coming to some family, important family events. Like her brother um, went through confirmation and she was supposed to be there. And she had all these excuses, you know, why she wasn't there. And, you know, she just kept looking more disheveled. And then she she lost her job. And a few months prior, there were some really glaring signs. And and I think my biggest regret is that I didn't act sooner, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. so hard to know what to do when you're in the middle oh. of all that chaos and, and you're not, in, it's not like a child in my house. Right. I mean, so. Well, and you did the best that you could with the information you had
1: at the time. That's what I've heard time and time again, people say, you know, you would have done things differently had you known, but the truth is you didn't know.
2: You she absolutely didn't, want, didn't know. Mm-hmm. She didn't want me to know. You know, she didn't want me to know she, she was ashamed, I believe she knew better. I mean, she knew, I mean, I I understand that addiction is a disease that takes over the brain and, and, um, you know, everything else kind of goes out the window when people are just looking for their next high and it becomes their way of life. But yeah, I I didn't know. And she didn't want me to know. Mm -hmm. So we
1: have something else in common that we have discussed a little bit earlier that we both really experienced trauma by having to be there. I mean, I was there when Andy had his accident and died. Can you talk about that day and that trauma that you experienced as well?
2: Right, so I just had contacted her. It was, I always say, it was the most beautiful day of spring. Of May sixteenth, 2018. It was one of those days, you know, where everything was blooming and there wasn't a lot of wind here where I live on the prairie and mm-hmm. just ideal temperatures. And I had texted her because we like to go hiking together. And I had texted her, hey, do you want to go hiking? I'm getting off work soon. And I had her back, which was weird because she would always respond right away to me because she knew I worried about her. She knew mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. and uh, then I had tried to call, and she didn't answer, and I thought, well, I'm not going to be that nagging, annoying mom, so I went home and had dinner with the rest of my family, and I went to go buy spring flowers for my pots mm-hmm. in the garden center, and uh, got a call uh, from her dad that he, it was the weirdest call. He just said, I, Emily's OD'd. I think she's dead, and I go, I don't, I don't even know. what." Th- I started driving in the wrong direction. I don't even, I don't have no idea I got turned around, but I got to her apartment and, um, you know, it was the scene of a, I've covered as a reporter a million times over, you know, the cop cars outside, the fire trucks, mm-hmm. the, the looky-loos, the door was propped open and, and I ran up there and got around officers who tried to stop me and, and, and went in and saw the paramedics working on her. as uh, She was laying on the floor of her bedroom and got down on my knees and prayed and prayed and prayed, but... yeah. They were there too late. You know, they administered uh, two doses of Narcan, but I was allowed to stay with her after they cleared out, before the crime lab came in, actually. I was allowed to to stay with her. And I think it's, I, I don't know if that's good or bad, you know, because I, mm-hmm. I that, those images come into my mind all the time. And it's like, I, mm-hmm. it never leaves me. It just just as you being on, you know, being part of the accident that your son was killed in, you know, never mm-hmm. leaves it's it's haunting they do they haunt you um, and uh, there is trauma I always like it to uh, I had a brain injury you know especially after in the months and year and even now it's probably not completely healed but I think there's that cloudiness between the two lobes of the brain you know when you have something so traumatic happen to you like you 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 forget things like I would forget like basic names or basic things like for months after this happened I mean I just think in in our society we, we want people to just pick up and go on after a death of someone you love more than your life, you know? And it's just, it's it's not even really possible for people to do that. I think we have really unrealistic expectations in our society of how, what we expect from people after they've been through something like you've been through or I've been through. Without a doubt, you
1: are absolutely right. How was it being a member of the media in this happening? Because I I know for our accident it was on every news station honestly for days i mean they came to the memorial service i they, i'm on tv crying for my son and it, anyway it ended up being a huge media presence and ev- i felt like then everyone was recognizing me from tv
2: uh, how would that for you because i think that would be exceptionally hard well at first I think I was embarrassed and ashamed. You know, this is not the way that my story or my daughter's story was supposed to end. You know, it taught me how little control I have in life or over another human being. And at first I did, I was so traumatized and so um, grief stricken. I didn't even know if I'd be able to go back to work and go back Mm -hmm. on television because I'm on television every single day. Yes. And I just thought, I I can't do that. Uh, But then as some time passed, I realized I needed... I needed to go back to work. I needed a job. I needed money and health insurance and all the things that go along with that. I didn't Mm -hmm. have the luxury of just quitting. Um, so, so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I, I, I'm, I want to own the story because already because I'm in the public eye rumors had been circulating that she had, you know, committed suicide or, I mean, not that it, not that that there's, there's no good way to lose a child. It doesn't, there's no shame or stigma on that either, but I I wanted the story to be told correctly and I wanted Mm -hmm. to own the story. And so I just thought I have to tell it, I have to tell it. And I called up my boss and I said, I want to do, I want to tell Emily's story and I want to do a special on the opioid epidemic. And she said, we were hoping you would say something like that. We really were, we were going to support you no matter what you wanted, but this is what we really want you to do too. And I did it. I sort of just plunged head first into it. I think I had really um, built up a thick skin over the years because I've been in this business for a few decades and, um, I'm used to being criticized, so whether that's sure. for my hair, or what I wear, or what they don't like my report, or whatever. So I had gotten to the point before she died where I didn't really uh, take count on people's praise or their criticism to define who I am. So I I knew I knew going in that I could hear a lot of horrible comments, uh, but and I really probably expected more of them. And I just I don't care. I, I don't really care. I'm doing this because I want to tell her story. So no other mother has to ever go through what I have gone through, or dad, mm-hmm. for that matter, parent, right. you know. Um, and that is why I did it. That is why I did it. And because I'd asked so many people over the years to tell it, I would have interviewed you, you know, yeah. after that accident. And, and how is it fair for me to expect you to talk about losing your son and then I lose my daughter and I just keep it to myself? I don't, I don't share what happened with people in order for ultimately people to learn from that experience right that's Mm -hmm. why that's why we do it um
1: well and overall the media here has been very good to us i mean that obviously the beginning was really hard but when i started my podcast i mean two of the news stations were here at my house covering the story and letting me tell people what i was doing and helping other people we had a the concert series that was supposed to happen. We were supposed to get the choir from St. John's, Cambridge, were supposed to come and do a concert for Andy. And they were great. They covered that. We sold out all of the tickets, I know, because they covered it. And then, of course, COVID came and the concert didn't happen. And we had to end up refunding the money and who knows if we'll ever have the andy larson memorial concert but i bet you will i I I certainly hope we do i certainly hope we do but i do have to say there were great things for that right they really helped that podcast launch and and there are a couple reporters especially that i feel really are kind of friends
2: now because of how they told my story well, no doubt if I didn't have the platform that I have, you know my charity would not have been able to grow as quickly and as large as it has. no or my podcast wouldn't have the following that it has or my blogs uh, those things that I do on the side as part of my nonprofit foundation i I would never have that if I hadn't been in this role of reporter at the same time, it's like a double edged thing. Right. So like I have this, there's great things about it. And there's also not such great things about it. Everybody knows what happened to my daughter, Uh, Mm -hmm. especially at first, you know, everybody wants to come up and talk to you about it or, and people are for the most part, really, really kind. I have to say when I was expecting all of those negative comments, Mm -hmm. there were a few, um, you know, you weren't a good enough mother, you put your career over your kid. This is why this happened to you, or this is natural selection, or she was just a junkie. Those for sure happened. But ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent of the people out there were supportive. Mm-hmm. And they and they lifted me up. That was what that was the miracle in all of that. Was that the people who surrounded me, the people who joined me in my mission of Emily's Hope, which is the name of my nonprofit, the people who joined me were lifting me up and helping me heal, helping my heart heal, you know, all that love. I always say love showed up, love just showed up. And it Mm -hmm. did that in the form of other people who came to be by my side and to walk through this with me and to do what they could to support my mission. And so without me ever speaking about it, that never would have happened. None right. of those things would have happened. And, and that is so brave that you were able to do that.
1: I recently spoke to another mom who I've known for a few years now, and her son had died of an overdose, and she had never really told her story until recently. And she had said she just felt like people would judge her. She said she didn't want to go back to church because she wondered what people were thinking. She wondered if people would now want not want their children to play with her other children, that they were bad kids or things like that. You just feel this judgment that it turns out didn't really happen nearly as much
2: as she feared it would happen when time goes on. But you just have that fear. You do, and one of the missions I have and one of the, the missions of Emily's Hope is to end the stigma surrounding addiction so that that will be gone. Or fewer people, if there weren't, wasn't the stigma, like what you're talking about with this woman, fewer people would be dead because we allow all this fentanyl to be in the drug supply. We allow this to continue to happen. We don't put enough resources. We don't do enough. Why? Why is that? Because of the stigma surrounding mm-hmm. this you know, but half the time dealers aren't even charged, you know, because of the stigma. Well, somebody chose to take these drugs. Well, we don't, we, well, I'm trying to reframe that. That That is really what I feel most passionate about. I don't want this woman that you're talking about to feel like her child's death is any different than your child's death. I mean, This is a horrible loss, And, and, and she deserves to be supported and loved. And it's not a reflection on her other children. And, you know, I think my other kids at first, especially my younger son, was worried about that. What will people think? my sister mm-hmm. died of a drug overdose. He's never touched a drug in his life. You know, I always say to like, we, we put so much on mothers, like we put so much response, responsibility on mothers in terms of how that child turns out. Yes. And I always say, well, if I take 100% of the blame for my daughter, you know, suffering from this disease of addiction, and, and um, ultimately overdosing and dying, do I take 100% of the credit? for this brainiac child I have who's taken all these advanced classes and God, you know, is doing mm-hmm. this, this, I mean, how can I be both? Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Right. So I just think like, I think we have to stop that we have to stop the blaming and the shaming, especially when it comes to addiction and we have to get the, to the root of understanding the brain and better ways to treat it. Mm-hmm. And, and once we stop that, once people can say, yeah, you know, I, I, I suffer from addiction or my child suffers from addiction without the fear of the, of the repercussions of shame and guilt and, you know, judgment, you know, then we'll be in a better place in this world where this will happen less frequently.
1: Mm-hmm. I've had um, moms reach out that have struggled, that have been struggling with that guilt, uh, especially I think when their children die of suicide or drug overdose, those are the two that they just feel so much guilt. How did you get past that? <laughs> uh because I that's what I've had questions is how do I get past this guilt? How, guilt. How, do I, how do I go on from the guilt?
2: I guess I write about some of that in my blogs uh, that I try to focus on the now, being present in the now. Mm-hmm. because I can't go back and rewrite or change the past. That's right. over with. And I can't have no control over what's going to happen in the future. And now I am free of both right now. So right. that frees me of the guilt. I focus a lot on when I when those feelings come up, like I just like the would have, should have, could have, right? Like if yeah. maybe if maybe if I had just said this or just done this one thing or just that I try to stop the that train of thoughts and I try to, you know, to redirect my thoughts to the present moment. I try to think about my breath. I mean, I use a lot of meditation, I exercise, and then the podcast and the and, and the blogs really help me too. They they help me find a purpose for all of that Mm -hmm. i think those uh you know i did have my priest say once guilt is from the devil there's no place for guilt here no room for guilt here and i i do think it's a it's a useless and wasted emotion Mm -hmm. now sometimes you know we we all feel shame for a reason right to stop us from from doing something bad right there's a purpose and maybe that emotion but guilt Mm -hmm. all you can do is do better the next day right Once Mm -hmm. you know better, you do better. Like you said, I just think once you know better, you
1: you do better. And you did the best that you could do with what you knew at the time. You didn't know what was going to happen, and you were doing your best job.
2: Right, Mm -hmm. right. And I think now, and and you probably feel this way too, it's the longing for her that I have. I'll tell you you a little story. It happened just this week. I was thinking of writing a blog about it because I thought maybe it would help other moms. Was that I, my husband and I had gone to Costco, and um, just a few, you know, aisles or ahead of us was this mother and father and this young woman, and this young woman looked like Emily. She had her hair up like Emily. She was wearing a jean jacket like and yoga pants like Emily would have. She had a long strap purse. The curve of her face looked a little bit like Emily's, and she's just getting groceries with her parents, you know, mm-hmm. and. I saw her and I looked at her. And then I looked at my husband and he's like, That looks like Emily. And I said, I know. And I'm standing over the fish in Costco, if you know where they are. And I'm crying. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm crying at the Costco. I said to my husband, I can't believe I'm crying at the Costco. I said, That looks so much like Emily. And I miss her so much. I long for her. Why can't she be in the Costco with me? Right. And so it's that longing you know with something that you'll never have. It's you know we have to accept the fact that our children aren't here. We have to accept yes. it. You mm-hmm. you can do nothing but accept it. For right? your life goes on. Your life does go on and you have to accept that too. Mm-hmm. Right? But the longing will always be there I think. Mm-hmm.
1: It's very interesting you are writing a blog post on Costco because I have a blog post entitled Costco. <laughs> so now, now you'll have to look at my webpage and see my Costco blog.
2: Okay. Uh, I, I did see so a couple of your moments
1: blogs, at Costco. To,
2: yeah, Costco moments. I don't know what happens there, but yeah. Yeah. Oh.
1: So tell us more about Emily's Hope and how that started, because I know you started by do, wanting
2: to do this story,
1: but how did it morph into Emily's Hope?
2: Well, right before I went public with her story, I wanted to do something with her artwork because she was a very prolific painter. She left me with 29 paintings. There are others out there I don't have, but I have 29 of them. She also was a seamstress. She sewed bucket hats and she made dream catchers and she did all these things. She's very artistic, made pottery. And I had all this artwork and I'm like, I just want to preserve her artwork. What, What can I do to preserve her artwork? And a local, um, health system was building a new treatment center. And so I thought maybe I can get her artwork in the treatment center. You know, what can I do? And I went to the groundbreaking of this and the idea just came to me. I need to raise money, uh, to help people get treatment at this treatment center, a scholarships, mm-hmm. you know, because I knew how expensive it was. And I just thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And then I, I'm gonna call it Emily's Hope. I, I write on there why it's called Emily's Hope. And I talk about it, but Um, but I started doing that and, and it just morphed and grew from there. And then my story, because I went public and because I'm on the news, went national and international and the thing just, it just took off. And now we help with treatment. We help with recovery, um, sober living homes. And I speak all over the country, telling her story, uh, hopefully to educate, especially to young people. Um, You know, to let them know, especially about the fentanyl in our drug supply, we can't look at experimenting and just kind of look away as parents or just kind of, you know, ha, we all, we all got drunk when we were young or whatever, because I I, I try. So all of that kind of came together in sort of this, I don't know, crazy way. I never could have imagined ever Mm -hmm. um, that I would be sitting here telling you about all this now. Well, it's
1: beautiful that you're able to do that. I know I have spoken to um, different kids, obviously, when I do just their checkups. And so many teens anymore, they don't even hide the fact that they're doing marijuana. They don't hide that from me at all. They all just say, oh, it's just a little weed and think it's better some ways than smoking cigarettes and better than drinking alcohol, which I then try to talk to them about this, right? But it's just becoming so accepted. Now in Michigan here, it's legal. Recreational marijuana is legal, not for teens, obviously, but for older people. So that makes them think even more. It's not a big deal. And I, a few years ago, I had a young girl come in, a very young teen, and her mom had brought her in because she had found that she had done heroin a couple of times. So not just the marijuana, but she was doing heroin and they actually were getting, um, uh, they wanted to do an FMLA act so that somebody would be home with her like 24 seven to keep her at home, to keep her from doing this. And the mom left the room. So I would have some time to talk to her and about the, she smoked marijuana every single day. And then she'd done heroin a few times and we were talking about how dangerous that was. And she said, I know that it was so amazing. If it was here right now, I'd do it again. And it broke my heart. It broke my heart. And she knew, she knew it was dangerous. She knew it was horrible, but it had given her such a high that she did not care.
2: Right. And as a physician, you know, this stuff is not for the developing brain. I mean, no uh, no use, no use ever. I I wish I could say 25, but of course- Right. That's probably not going to happen, but at least until 21. I mean, your chances of becoming addicted the younger you use it. And- I, they're just so exponentially higher than if you can delay first use, you know, that kind of thing. But we have normalized marijuana in the society. And, oh, there's that big debate over it being a gateway drug. Well, is it a gateway drug or not? I know for my daughter, it was. And yeah. I know she started using marijuana at about the age of 14. And so and so many people I've talked to who are in recovery lots of people famous people like jack osborne or brandon novak they say the second time i smoked weed or the first time or whatever one first or second time i knew this was it for me like i had found my thing and so i have tried that's when when i talk to kids i'm like you don't know if it has fentanyl in it i mean it's like playing russian roulette any kind of illegal drug you do any kind of illegal drug Mm -hmm. could have fentanyl in it so so this is something we have to stop like thinking it's okay for I mean, I know weed is a huge thing among kids now. I, I, I mean, it's really prevalent on college campuses, but it's not good for their brains. Oh, no, you know? it's terrible. People, and I tell, kids, them, you know, and tell, I tell them all the
1: time that you make stupid decisions, too. And yeah. let's just think about it that way. You don't even have to think about the dangerous medical component, just what it does to you mentally and how now you do stupid things. Right. You, know, you just
2: right. you and get uh, in
1: a car and you drive or you end up getting pregnant or all of these number of things that you can do when
2: you are high that you would not do if you weren't. So God. there's a lot, a lot to it. And I do think Emily's story has gotten through to some kids. I always say, even if, even if um, we, I just say one life in this mission that I'm on, even if one person lives and you know has a good life because we've done this. I spoke in Michigan um, a while back at your Capitol uh, mm-hmm. in Lansing. And um, I spoke to a group of teenagers. It was a big health conference. And this girl came up to me and she said to me, she's about 17, I think. And she said, you know, a couple of years ago, I tried to commit suicide. But after watching your story and what this does to what this did to you as a mom, I never want to do that to my mom. I never no. want to do it. You when know, I've had kids come up and say, I'm doing meth, I'm doing heroin. What do I do? You know, in small towns, you know, places you'd never think, but it's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. And these overdoses are happening to these kids. And I mean, man, we got to, we got to get a grip on this. Are there going to be a lot more? There already are. I mean, there are already are thousands of moms like me out there. Thousands mm-hmm. of us, you know? Yeah. Tens of thousands. And it's hard when
1: it's something that you feel like could have been prevented, right? Oh, sure. You know,
2: sure. Yeah. It mm-hmm. should have I been I think prevented. that makes it,
1: I think, yeah, I think that makes it worse, right? Just like with our car accident, how she was completely doing something she shouldn't have been. I'll never know what it was, but she was doing something. There's no reason she should have hit us. There's, and when you are making bad choices, you feel like you made that choice. Why did you make that bad choice? Right. what could you have done
2: differently? Well, and then also like the dealers putting the fentanyl and killing people, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, using heroin wasn't necessarily a death sentence that it is today. You know, mm-hmm. this, the drugs being laced with this chemical. I mean, it's just this synthetic opioid. It's just, you can't take the risk. You know, it's you can't take it. But people do every day because the high is so powerful.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we had someone recently in our community that
1: just had some sort of synthetic drug in their system and they knew they took it. I can't remember what they called it, but they ended up almost dying in the Peds ICU and the ICU docs couldn't even figure out what it was, right? Because it's synthetic and nothing tested positive in the drug screen. We knew they took something, but we just don't know
2: what it is. And that's awfully scary when you don't know. This is a a plague. Upon our children, you know, really, as it's an epidemic, just like just like COVID-19, you know, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, it's an acquired disease. I think that that's the difference. Right. So I would say somebody who maybe has diabetes, the kind that is, you know, um, lifestyle induced, Mm -hmm. makes a choice. Right. And so the user of the drug makes a choice to use it. But then at some point, they're not making a choice anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. and so it's, it's not them in charge
1: anymore. It. Yeah. Right. It's an They've acquired it. disease, but it's, you just um... slowly, I think, lose control because those kids—they, I mean, every single one of those kids that is smoking marijuana, even the ones that come in and are smoking marijuana every single day, and they tell me—they all tell me they could quit tomorrow. They all do, and I don't think they can. Like I've talked to them about this. Like I know you think you can, but are you sure? Because I'm wondering if you really can, if you really have this much control, as much control as you think you do, because I don't think they
2: do. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I think we just prevention, I think, has to be the biggest key to save lives. I really Mm -hmm.
1: do.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: But right now you're trying to focus on treatment, too. Do you do some prevention things with Emily's
2: Hope as well? Right. So the, the talking, the speaking that I do, and yeah. I'm hoping uh, my next big goal is to come up with an educational program to start in like, I want to say third grade. I'd like to start as young as possible, second or third grade, starting with some age appropriate lessons, you know, to try to keep kids from making these choices um, and, and curriculum that would be, un- you know, year long curriculum. Uh, So that's my next goal. I haven't, I'm not there yet. Right now we've helped. We've actually given since December 32 scholarships for treatment. Oh, Um,
1: wonderful.
2: And that's, and and we actually support organizations. So we don't, you know, give individuals help, but we, we support the organization that helps individuals. And then we also support um, sober living homes. And we've been able, we've had a house, sober living house named after us, the Emily's Hope House for Women and Children. And so we help support them and and, and that mission there. So I always say it's uh, education, uh, treatment, and recovery. We have a three-legged stool there. Yeah, a three-prong approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Does this feel like something that you can kind of do with Emily? I know I feel like I kind of almost do this with Andy when I do the podcast. Do you feel like
2: Emily's a part of it now? I I feel very strongly that I want my daughter to have a, uh, this is her legacy Mm -hmm. and especially with her art. Like we have an art show and we, we like, we just had a big poker run outside here um, where we use her artwork on the motorcycle and we used her artwork on the t-shirts. And so we, we have stickers that have her artwork and I'm hoping to get to the point on the website where I can sell like prints of her artwork because I want her, she was so talented and I want that part of her to live on. Mm -hmm. So I feel very, very strongly about that.
1: Yeah. I think that's a big thing that we all as parents want our children to live on in some way, right? right. We don't want them forgotten. That right. is such a scary thing as a mom uh, when you lose your child to think that their life will someday be forgotten.
2: And I want her to be remembered for her talent and who she was, what kind of person she was, not how she died. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, it's, I struggle with that because that's such a big part of the story. And such a big part of what we're trying, you know, to help others with, but it's not the only thing I wanted to be remembered for, you know. No, no.
1: That is important. Important to remember them. Well, I want you to I want to thank you for agreeing to be on today. I really enjoyed talking with you and learning about Emily and Emily's hope. How can people find out more?
2: Well, we have a website, uh, paintingapathtorecovery.org, or you can just Google Emily's Hope. So, it's painting a path to recovery because she was a painter, and okay. we have uh, we have a lot of resources on our website, as well as resources on how to get help, resources for families. I have my podcast and my blog and her story and all of those things. And we have a Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram. So, if you look up Emily's Hope, you'll find it. And what's your podcast called? Grieving Out Loud.
1: Mm-hmm. You had a reason for choosing that title, too, I think,
2: didn't you? <laughs> I did. Well, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I, I am grieving out loud. I'm not just keeping it to myself. You know, I'm kind of shouting from the rooftops here in the form of a podcast and a blog and the stories that I do. And so definitely I'm grieving out loud. Yeah.
1: I think I heard you say something. It was kind of like for crying out loud. You're grieving yes. out loud, right?
2: Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. We say that expression. That's kind of where I got it from. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well thanks again. I really appreciate it, Angela. Thank you for letting me share Emily's story. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at Marcy at Andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.